This is the Janet Killeen Books Podcast. I'm reading from my collection of short stories, There Is a Season. This story is called Beneath the Floor. Wires stretch beneath the floorboards, here under my feet, twitching to jangle in the ears of Eliza, Minnie or Millicent, the name thrown at her and her kind like scraps to a dog, trained to bob and say, Yes, ma'am. Smoothing her apron, fingernails scraped and hair trained tight under her cap at the orphanage, now crumbled to foundation rubble under the estate near the playing fields and she rushes breathless to answer from the scullery and take away the cups and saucers, the cake stand, the napkins. And the lady turns to her guest and says, A good girl, but... And her eyes tilt upwards to the ceiling, as if to say, Not polished, and we must make allowances, the orphanage, you know. And her guest sighs and nods in complacent agreement with her. Eliza. The house, built raw new in diamond jubilee year, a sand-yellow London brick three-storey frontage with unsoftened liver-red curlicues around the porch and above the windows, a struggling newly planted hedge, a white and black diamond front path edged with barley twist, a flight of steps to the door where the brass gleams on the knocker and on the number, to the side the railings and steps that lead down to the scullery and the side entrance. The front steps tell of steps climbed to reach this wealth, this social poise. Two more than any other of the houses in the street. The doctor with an established practice in town, consultant at the teaching hospital. A wife, a son at rugby school, a cook and two maids a groom who tends the horse and serves as coachman. And the century about to turn in which all this will be swept away. Eliza, foundling, starting work at fourteen, doubling up her scullery duties with the fires and hot water before the family rises, and learning to manage her shivering hands in the afternoons as she hands plates of cake and cups of tea to Madame and her guests. She takes her aching body and choke tears to the small bedroom shared with Mavis, but Mavis has a follower now and sees him once a week, and so no eyes or ears for her. No one at the orphanage had told her about the awful blood when it came, and the salt in tepid water before the nightgown can be boiled in the great copper. She shrinks before the chiding, exasperated kindness of the cook. Nor had they told her of the rough attacks of the boy back from boarding school, seventeen now, and fleshly large, with wet-lipped, greedy tongue, and hands snatching and tugging at small breasts and laces. Not now the pinches and pushing against the wall to feel her as he shoved by in the early days. His father might have seen him once from the landing below had he only lifted his eyes from his papers, 
but he only smiled distantly at the girl when he saw her pressed against the wall and passed on. And she had bobbed in terror and gratitude at the respite, smoothing out the crumpled apron at her breast. But now it was strength and a damp hand on her mouth as he rummaged and hurt her. And again and again, and she too frightened to speak hiding her sobs in the mattress, her hands flexing in empty and comfortless air. Her hands are held tightly, decorous as trained over her apron that afternoon, but Madame sees the betraying curve of her swelling belly, projecting from the cage of her ribs, and condemns her, raucous as a crow, shameless, shameless. Then, controlled now, dropping the octave into the mellow dignity of reproach. How could you, Eliza, after all we have done to provide for you, taking you untrained from the orphanage and giving you this opportunity? A world of gentility is encompassed in her vowels. The whole future pivots upon her, and by some miracle of courage she finds her voice Twisting her hands together, she exclaimed, But it was him, ma'am, it was him, or son, ma'am. The words tumble from her shocked, involuntary mouth. The woman rises to strike her across the face. How dare you, how dare you accuse my son, you slut. You have forgotten your place in this house. As she stands, crouching to cover her face and muffle the gasps in her apron, the father enters, striding through the door from the hall, hearing all as he entered the house, and seeing the wife, the maid, as if in tableau. Oh, I should have dealt with this and with the behaviour of our son long ago. I left it to you, he says forcibly to his wife, finding within himself emotions long suppressed to vent his rage and shame. And he seizes the girl, not roughly, gently, gently by her arm, turning to his wife. Send the maid to pack her things. She will go with me. Then taking her to his study, seating her to let her weep, he proffers a handkerchief, clumsily wiping her eyes. There, there, Eliza, Eliza, isn't it? And she nods, trembling, gulping, feeling that the flood of tears he has unleashed may never end. He has sent for her coat and hat, and helping her to put them on, picks up her small bag and sends for the groom. I'm taking you with me, he says. And as she stares, her whole face reddened and stained with tears, her eyes brimming, he tells her, I'm taking you to my own nurse of long ago. She lives on a farm with her husband now. She will care for you as she did for me all those years ago. She flashes a quick, scared glance at him and sees him smile with remembered tenderness. They go by trap to the station and the clip of hoof and cobble ever after mark for her the cutting off of one world from another. Then a confusion of crowds and platforms, whistles, the shunt and hiss of steam, gleaming pistons, huge, slow-turning wheels, slamming carriage doors, 
and all the time his hand at her elbow, a bag carried in his other hand. He seats her in the stiff first-class compartment beside him before the long train journey begins, up beyond Pickering, changing at York. Hours pass into darkness and nodding sleep and sudden frightened jerks of wakefulness before he brings her down the long lane that leads to the farm. And then she may grow up at last in a safe place and child still herself give birth to her baby boy. It seemed as though each morning she could rest her eyes on the far swell of the hills and drink from this cup this spring of freshness, wider skies, cold and sharp winters, and the breaking of earth and hedge, leaf and flower in spring. So her boy grows up, a lad on the farm, close to his mother, safe within the encircling warm love of the farm kitchen, and then stumbling into the yard and into the barns, and older now, roaming with the old dog for company further to the stone-walled bounds of the farm and beyond. And girl no longer, Eliza watches the seasons, gentle with the chickens and with labouring sheep brought into the barn, and eager in all the jobs of the kitchen, lugging the heavy kettles of hot water, caring for the ageing woman she learns to call Nan, and for her farmer husband to save them in old age from their unspoken fears of the workhouse or the infirmary. But never smiling, never speaking of that time in London, though her voice and body soften and round as she learns to forget the pinched, scraped voices, the half-starved juts of wrist and elbow of her childhood, absorbing instead the gentler vowels, the rightness of earth and air as the years pass around her. Each half-year for twenty-one years his grandfather sends money for their upkeep, and the boy does well at elementary school, well enough, maybe, in different days, to get a place at the grammar school. The boy, her lad, springs up like a larch, loving the farm and the stern demands of stock and season. He knows humbly that he will inherit from the old couple so proud of him and thankful now that they are not childless and the farm will not be sold to a stranger. But turned eighteen, the war sucks him into its mouth and spits him into the mud and slimy blood of Hill Sixty. And long after, he returns slowly, walking up the dark lane from the station and stumbling into the oblong glow of light that marks the farmhouse door. Silent, staring, one arm hanging clumsy and strengthless, blinking in the light and rigid in their arms of welcome. Crippled, he says, bitterly and silently, his head leaning into a dark corner of his old room. Strengthless to work with the horse on the farm, to plough and harvest the one field, or to fetch in the sheep from the low moorland hills and see them safe through lambing. So, hiding all through one afternoon and evening in the shed beside the stable, he makes a harness for himself out of old bridles, 
for neck and shoulders and wasted arm to be able to take the horse out to plough the back field. As the new year breaks sharp in frost and mist, he leads the horse out early and sets to with hand and teeth, leather and buckle, to fasten the heavy ploughshare and harness himself to the patient horse. Out to the long field, low under the moor's edge, rending the earth open for the new seed and smelling the scent of it in the crisp air, he finds a slow rhythm behind the plough, calling to the horse, bracing his body in its straps and harness. Then, as he turns from the head of the field and sees the gouge ruts, the wounds of the earth terrify him with memory. In his mind emerge the lads he served with, maimed and blooded, stumbling sodden from the furrows. She is watching him, still and quiet from the corner of the barn, proud, then quickened as if in her own womb again with his anguish, running to him to take his tall body in her arms as he bends over the shafts and hold him as he tears from himself the shreds of memory. The friend's dead, the dreadful dismemberment of man and animal, the earth itself fouled and ripped by trench and shell and gas, the trees splintered, the terror of waiting, the worst terror of attack. She gathers it into herself, drawing it from him like poison until he quietens, shakes himself, and looks up into the clear January sky and to the trees beyond. Then in a strange serenity, they walked together all through that day, he leaning into the plough and calling up the horse, she beside him, stumbling sometimes on the new-turned furrows, healing one another. In the autumn of that year, warmed by the late suns of August, so that even his bones have forgotten their drenched weariness, he goes courting a local girl, bright as gorse, kind as the warmth of hay, with energy for both of them. They manage the livestock through cruel winters and dropping prices, and keep faith with the old couple, grieving for them as they pass through sickness into death, but keeping the farm alive despite all hardship, and always Eliza, quiet at the centre, part of the warmth and welcome of food on the table, fire in the range to greet them at the end of each day. And much longed for, her first grandchild is born, into the years of poverty on the farm, growing up cold and chapped with winter, but expanding like hawthorn into brightness at the touch of spring. Down the lane to the village school, and his quiet father and his mother and his grandmother, proud and confident to see him thrive there. Thou'll make something of the self, they say to him, and the day comes when he goes by train into Moulton to the grammar school, and then one day to university in Leeds, following unknown footsteps to study medicine. On that day, waiting early, nervous, on the station platform with him, the brown leather case at his feet, and books tied with a leather strap resting on his lap, she unfolds a letter. It has waited nearly fifteen years to be read aloud. Your great-grandfather, she says, a letter sent to me from his solicitor after his death. The family grow very still. 
The porter shouts across the rails to the signalman high in his box. A dog yelps. The bleating of sheep rolls from the low moor. He wrote to tell me that his son, your grandfather, had died in the war. He died with courage, he said, and I am less ashamed, but I want to make further amends. He set up a trust fund for whichever of his great-grandchildren should wish to go to university. It has waited all this time for you, and it will see you through the years of training. Her hands stiffen on the letter, then straighten out the creases as it rests in her lap. So long ago, she said, and I never speak of it, except when it was right to tell your father and mother, but he was a kind man and bitterly ashamed, and he could have abandoned me. I do not think he was ever happy. She turns to me then. He would be very proud of you, of your father, of your family. The train is coming now, shuffling in steam through the valley, and I stand up to hold each of them close. My father straining his one good arm hard round my shoulders, my mother's eyes tearfully bright, my grandmother, Eliza, reaching up to kiss me and put the letter and its enclosures into my pocket. Soon, in my first year, war comes again, and three years later I am swept up in it to train in readiness for the invasion of Europe, my elementary medical training needed as we advance. When I return, walking up the lane as my father had walked so long ago, I find them in the kitchen as though I had never left but older, worn and grey with the years taken from them my brother leaning on the table, weary from a day out on the hills, my sister clearing away the plates, my father studying the paper with its news of labour victory, my mother stooping to put away something in a cupboard, Eliza knitting. Each of them captured in that moment in my mind even now. So we stitched together the patches of our lives for a little while, but when I qualified, I was the first to leave, to travel south and take up work in one of the London hospitals in the new health service. My brother stayed with the farm. My sister married a Canadian airman and emigrated to Vancouver. I married, and Eliza saw her first great-grandchild. Some five years later, she slipped through the fingers of life one morning in early spring. I found my father stumbling along the furrows of the backfield before her funeral. And I, an old man now, in a ground-floor London flat, tinnitus in my deaf ears or hearing, perhaps, the jangling demands that bring her scuttling to the drawing-room. The wires still run beneath the floorboards of my room, running to her, to that moment of her crying out, which gave her child a name, a certainty of home, and from his birth the deep connecting bonds of generations unbreakable across the Atlantic Ocean, in city clinics and classrooms, in Yorkshire fields, under wide, bright skies. Eliza
You have been listening to Beneath the Floor from the book There is a Season. Read by the author Janet Killeen and produced by Duncan P.B. For more stories, please subscribe on iTunes or from wherever you get your podcasts.